Good morning. As we open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, I think, um, I think you've done a very good job adjusting to the weirdness that comes along with a transition like this, being in a new building, finding parking spaces, even like how do we do the offering, you know, there's always a little bit of clunkiness and change there, but you all are handling it with an abundance of grace, so thank you for that. Let's start our time together by uh, listening to God speak to us from Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them, and you shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten. And they were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is not our own. The fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met with Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people 
at all. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say to us today about who you are, about who we are. We pray that you would help us to see clearly. Lord, calibrate our hearts to believe, to not doubt, but to trust in you, come what may, in this life of sin. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in last week's text, we saw Moses and Aaron gather the elders of Israel together, and when they did, they performed the signs and wonders of God, they spoke the words of God, and the end result was that the people of God responded by worshiping God. So far, so good. That was phase one of the mission. In this morning's text, phase two begins. Moses and Aaron Aaron must have an audience with Pharaoh. Now, gaining an audience with a king in the ancient world may not be as difficult as we might suppose due to our own political context. In in our own political context, the idea that you could ever have a sit-down meeting with the president is just preposterous. It's just beyond unlikely. It hasn't always been that way. Actually, it used to be that in the United States, if you were somewhere around the White House, you could actually perhaps maybe have a sit-down with the president. You could schedule an appointment with him. Well, long gone are those days. Nevertheless, in the ancient world, it would not have been at all unreasonable for certain people to have a meeting with Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron, they go before Pharaoh, and when they do, they make a request. And the request is, let us go into the wilderness so that we may have a three-day feast to our God. Now, this is another custom that would not have been very strange. It would not have been unheard of for slaves to request to have some time off from their labors so that they could worship their God. Nevertheless, Pharaoh is not amenable to this request, and so he mockingly responds to it by saying, who is Yahweh? I can just almost imagine if they had that back then, you know, the air quote, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And at this point in the story, our minds should be drawn back to the first encounter that Moses had with the Lord at the burning bush, where Moses quite genuinely asks, who are you? You know, like, he has this very strange encounter with, with an angel of the Lord in the bush and doesn't really know what to make of it. And he says, who are you? Well, here we have Pharaoh not so genuinely basically asking the same question, except when Pharaoh asks this question, it's not really a question. It's more of a statement. It's actually an indictment. You have to remember that in the ancient world, kings were seen to be imbued with divine power, especially the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh had a unique fame in the ancient Near East. He was known to be a God figure with with powers that were greater than all of the other gods in the lands. And so in, in Pharaoh's own mind, he is a big deal and he knows it. You see this pictured, I think, quite well in the DreamWorks classic one of their earliest uh, pictures, the Prince of Egypt. Is it perfectly historically accurate? No, it's not. But I'm surprised at how good of a job they did. In, in one scene where the Pharaoh is being challenged by Moses, Pharaoh says, I am the morning and the evening star. If I say day is night, thus it will be written. That's a historically accurate way to write a script for Pharaoh. He believed that he had the power of God. So when Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh and they say something like, in the name of the God of Israel, let my people go, Pharaoh goes, in the name of who? Oh, you mean in the name of the God of the people that I have had enslaved for the last 400 years? This God does not seem particularly powerful to me. How powerful can a God be if the people that he's supposed to be in a special relationship with are enslaved to me as unto a God? In verse 3, Moses responds to Pharaoh, and we begin to see evidence of Moses' doubt towards God. 
doubt in relation to God's promises, what we see is that Moses adds his own words to the message that God gave him to deliver to Pharaoh. He says, let us go or else God will punish us. Now what's crazy about that is God nowhere told Moses to say this. You will, there's, there's, there's nothing about this in the message that God gave Moses to deliver to Pharaoh. So what we see here is that Moses is trying to manipulate the sympathies of Pharaoh. Maybe Pharaoh will feel sorry for us. Maybe he will let us go if he thinks we'll be punished if we don't go. What we see here in this in this scenario when Moses adds his own words to God's word is that on some level Moses must not believe that the word of God is sufficient for the task that he has been called to. On some level Moses must not believe that God's word alone that word alone is significant. There's a reason why the reformers had the five solas. All of them have an alone attached to them. Grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church believes in salvation by grace. They believe in salvation by faith. It's when you add alone that the problem comes in. They would say, oh yes, we believe that God's word is sufficient to do God's work. But when you, say, when, you say, when you say that word sufficient, I don't think you mean what we mean when we say that word sufficient because we say God's word alone is all that we need to accomplish our task. Moses must not believe that at some level because he thinks he needs to manipulate the emotions and the sympathies of the Pharaoh in order to get him to do what God wants him to do. And brothers and sisters, how often do we foolishly think the same thing? How often do we feel like we need to decorate, adorn the gospel to get people to believe it? Do we need to spruce things up? Do we think we need to file down some of the sharper edges of the gospel? Do we feel like we need to add our own wisdom, our own creativity to God's word so that people will accept it and receive it? As we keep moving through the story, Pharaoh responds to Moses in exactly the way that God said he would. His heart is hardened. Now here's the thing. When your heart is already hostile towards the slaves in your power, but then God comes along and hardens your heart even more, things go from bad to worse. So Pharaoh responds to Moses and his request by increasing the people's burdens. He says, oh, oh, you're worried about your people? Well, watch this. They're gonna have to make the same amount of bricks, but I'm not gonna give them any more straw. They have to come up with their own straw. They have to get it for themselves. Now, if you're not familiar with the craft of brick making, it's, it's not super complicated. You basically need three things. You need clay, you need straw, and you need heat. Heat you can have from an oven, but in in Egypt, you just get it from the sun. Clay, you have to kind of dig up out of the ground. You have to shape it and mold it. It's still not that complicated. Straw, on the other hand, needs to be grown. It needs to be cut. It needs to be gathered, so on and so forth. Bricks without straw are kind of like concrete without rebar or rock. It begins to crumble under pressure. Spencer Miller, correct me if I'm wrong on that after service. Or Adam, I think Adam, yeah, one of you guys, let me know if I messed that up. Now this, this new arrangement that Pharaoh has put together for them, this is a major blow for the Israelites. Logistically speaking, this would have been a nightmare. Maybe not at first. It's possible that at first they would have had enough straw in storage that they wouldn't have really felt the effects of this immediately, but soon enough, as that straw begins to run out, as the supply chain begins to become disrupted by this new arrangement, they would have gotten desperate. And that's exactly what we see in verse 12. We see that the people were scattered in their search for straw. They were scattered. <coughs> One of the cool things that happens the more you read the Bible is that you begin to pick up on certain details, nuances. You, you start to see certain patterns. Certain words begin to emerge to you as very significant. And when that happens and you come to a passage like this and you see the word scatter, you understand that this word is actually loaded 
with significance. All throughout the Bible, the word scattered has very significant meaning. So for example, in Leviticus 26, 33, God says, I will scatter you among the nations. Now he's speaking to his people there who are under the curse of disobedience for their lack of faithfulness to the covenant. In Genesis 6, the Tower of Babel causes the peoples of the earth to be scattered. The examples could be multiplied, but you get the point. When you come to this story in Exodus 6 and you see that things are going from bad to worse and then you read that the people are being scattered, you understand that something significant is happening here. Another word that's significant in the story is it says that the people began to gather stubble for straw. This detail reminds me of the the siege of Stalingrad in World War II where things got so bad for the people in that city that they started cutting the leather off of their boots and trying to cook it for food. They began to add sawdust to their soup to stave off their starvation. This is the direction that the Israelites are heading in. They are digging through the land looking for anything that could possibly pass for straw that they could add to the bricks. What's really interesting about this part of the story is the reasoning that Pharaoh employs for this new arrangement. He says, listen, <laughs> you guys are just being lazy, okay? Oh, you, you want a holiday? You're just looking for an excuse to be idle. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you so much work. I'm going to make things so hard for you that you won't have time to think of any crazy ideas like going out on a three-day weekend. You're going to be so busy and so tired, you won't even have time to think about taking a trip into the desert. Now you have to remember the world in which this story is taking place. Ancient Egypt was a very well-organized society. There was a hierarchy of authority and a primitive, yes, but sort of like an org chart, nonetheless, was in place. And here's how it worked. Pharaoh would have appointed Egyptian taskmasters to make sure all of his work got done. Those taskmasters would have appointed Hebrew foremen among the slaves to make sure that their work got done. And then these foremen would have led the slaves in doing the actual manual labor. Now, when I was in the military, we used to have a saying, poop rolls downhill. You ever heard that? We didn't say poop. Poop rolls downhill. And I think that that's what we find in verse 14, Moses tells us that the Hebrew foremen were being beaten by their Egyptian taskmasters for not meeting the quota. Now you might say to that, well, it's not fair. If you were to say that to the taskmasters, they would say, that's not my problem. It's not my problem that you don't have enough straw. Here's the task, figure out a way to get it done. Stop complaining and get back to work. All this time complaining, you could have been out looking for straw. Well, eventually things get bad enough that the foremen go above their taskmaster's heads and they make their appeal, probably through a representative, to Pharaoh himself. And when they get an audience with Pharaoh, they say exactly what you would expect someone in this situation to say. They say, this isn't fair. You're, you're, you're asking me to make bricks without the materials. This is literally not possible. A reasonable king in this situation would say, you know, that's right. I, I actually, I, I got angry. Moses and Aaron really just got under my skin. I kind of acted uh, out, of, out of my anger and I gave a command that's really not possible to fulfill so here's what we're going to do I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to undo that I'm going to give you the straw because really what matters most to me as your king is that this kingdom is built I want you to have straw to make the bricks because I want the bricks to be used in the building of the buildings because all of that will redound to the glory of my name that's what a reasonable king would say but Pharaoh is not being reasonable and he responds to them exactly like you would expect him to respond if his heart was in fact growing harder he says stop being lazy get back to work <laughs> the beatings will commence until the production improves and then something really interesting happens in verse 20 we see that apparently Moses and Aaron are waiting in the wings in the palace to find out how this meeting 
goes between the taskmasters and Pharaoh. And so as the taskmasters come out and, Fer- and Moses and, and Aaron are there in the hallway, they, they want to know, how did, how did it go? They say, what's the deal? What did Pharaoh say? Is he going to relent? And, and the foreman, excuse me, not the taskmasters, the foreman, uh, they unload on Moses and Aaron. They say, why have you done this to us? You just had to go and instigate things, didn't you? You just had to stir the hornet's nest. They were already looking for an excuse to kill us, and you just put the sword in their hands. So, you know, I hope you're happy because guess what? We're all going to die now. And this takes us to the climax of the story. We find Moses wounded, fearful, anxious, doubting. And then he goes to God and he says, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to your people? You were supposed to deliver us and you're not delivering us at all. So here's the main thing I want you to see this morning. And everything in this story has been kind of leading us up to this point. Moses, because of his suffering, is doubting the word of God. Moses, because of his suffering, is doubting the word of God. Go back and look at verses 22 and 23 again. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. In order to understand the significance of of this, the climax of the story, you have to remember that God already told Moses that things were going to get worse before they got better. It's not like this is a surprise for Moses. It's not like God told Moses, guess what, Moses? You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say, let my people go, and then he's going to say, oh, sure, and then he just lets the people go, and then you're going to be free. God said that's not what's going to happen. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, God told Moses it was going to happen like this. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. God told Moses what was going to happen, but suffering, the suffering, the the anxiety, the fear that Moses was experiencing, it had a way of causing him to forget what he already knew to be true. It caused him to forget what God had already told him. The, The very thing that he was acting on in faith when he went to Pharaoh, he He's forgetting it because of his suffering. And this is common. This is common in our own experience, but it's also common throughout the whole Bible. Think about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a letter that's written to Jewish Christians who are suffering terrible persecution for their faith in Christ. And as things go from bad to worse for these Jewish Christians, they begin to consider going back to Judaism. They think about going back to the law, going back to the old ways. Their suffering was causing them to forget the promises of the gospel. So what does the author of Hebrews do? He writes them this letter, which many commentators believe is actually a sermon. I actually think it's a sermon. And he says, guys, listen, don't let your suffering blind you to the promise of the gospel. If you want to go back to Judaism, you have to know that there's nothing back there for you because all of it was pointing forward to Christ. You go back to the temple, guess what? There is no temple. Christ is the temple. You can go back to the sacrificial system if you want, but it's not going to do you any good. You can slaughter bulls and lambs and goats day in and day out for the rest of your life, but all of that was really pointing forward to Jesus, the final sacrifice. There's no priesthood anymore. He is our great high priest. Don't let your suffering blind you to these gospel truths. Instead, and this is the way he ends the letter, focus on Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him faithfully endured suffering. You take another New Testament example, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is quite a significant story, uh, character in the story of salvation. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was a prophet that boldly proclaimed the coming of Jesus as the long-awaited Christ. I mean, think about what he experienced. He baptized the Lord Jesus 
in the River Jordan. He heard the words of God the Father speaking down from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. He saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on Jesus. This dude should be rooted firmly in his faith. But then suffering came. In Matthew 11, we find that John is in prison, soon to be beheaded. And in John's imprisonment, he begins to doubt. Listen, Matthew chapter 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? What? Should we look for another? Bro, you heard God speak from heaven. You saw the Holy Spirit descend like a dove. You were the dude who was out there like, yo, everybody needs to repent because the time has come. The Messiah is here. I'm not even worthy enough to tie his sandals. He went from that to did I, did I miss something? Are you the one? Or like, are you, like, am I pointing forward to you and then you're going to point forward to, to someone else? What am I missing here? John the Baptist. What caused that? It was his suffering and the prospect of even greater suffering. Or you could just think about the disciples in general. You can think about Peter in particular who kind of serves as a picture of all of the weakness of the disciples combined. Under normal, uh, under normal circumstances, the disciples seemed to be full of faith, right? Everyone abandons Jesus. Jesus turns around and he goes, are you guys going to leave me too? Peter says, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. That's the right answer, Peter. Good job, buddy. Or even if everyone else denies you, Lord, I never will. That's what I'm talking about, right? That's, that's, that's what we want. But then the story unfolds. The soldiers come. The beatings commence. The crosses go up, and faith seems to forget itself. And Peter, along with all the other disciples, scatter. Scatter. Now think about your own life. I know, <laughs> very often we are strong, we are firm. If everyone else denies you, Lord, I never will. Where else are we gonna go, Lord? You alone have the words of life. But then suffering comes. And we begin to doubt, we begin to forget the promises of God when we're hurting, when we're afraid, when we're suffering, when the plan isn't unfolding like we thought it would, like we thought it should, we begin to forget, we begin to doubt. But here's the thing. God never promised us that we would never suffer. He never made that promise to us. You can search the Bible high and low. You will never find that promise. He's promised us a thousand good things. He has never promised us that we would not suffer. In fact, God has promised us the opposite. He has promised us that in this fallen world, things will always get worse before they get better. He has told us quite clearly that the, the night is always darkest before the dawn. He's told us that the desert has to come before the promised land, right? When Jesus promised us eternal life, he didn't say, you know, listen, you get saved, Boom, there you go. You're going to be in heaven with me forever, and it's going to be easy going from there on out. No, he says, you're going to have to take up your cross every single day. And if you want to live, you're first going to have to do a lot of dying. You suffer first, then comes the glory. You know, sometimes if you, if you have kids, uh, <clears throat> kids can sort of invent promises. Have you ever noticed that before? Uh, your kids will ask you something, you'll say, I don't know, maybe. And then somehow between like then and like maybe even an hour after that, the promise has been made. You said we were going to go to, I don't know, Baskin Robbins and get ice cream. Did I say that? I don't think I ever said that. I think I told you maybe, or I'll think about it, or I'll talk to your mother about it. I never promised that. 
Well, we can do the same thing with our Father God. We can sort of invent promises that he has never made to us. God, you told me that you were going to deliver these people and it wasn't going to be hard. But God never said that. Lord, you told me you would make me happy in Jesus. True, the Lord replies, but I told you from the outset that doing so would be costly. God, you promised me life and life more abundantly. To which Jesus replies, of course, yes, amen, but I also told you that you can only have that after you die. We look at our lives and the suffering therein and we look at the promises of God and sometimes we feel like the math doesn't add up, like we've been shortchanged. But the, the math is not off with God. Our math is bad. God never promised us redemption without pain. He promised us the same thing that he promised his son. Glory through obedience and death. Glory through obedience and death. Just think about the life and the ministry of Jesus. God promised his incarnate son the fullness of glory. But the road to that glory had to cut right through Golgotha. There was no other way There's no glory without Golgotha. The path to the greatest joy had to lead through the valley of deepest pain. But there is a difference between Jesus' suffering and our suffering. Our suffering is limited. His suffering was comprehensive. Our suffering is a form of discipline. His suffering was a form of punishment. Our suffering is born of guilt. His suffering was innocent. He never sinned. He always walked in a way that was perfectly pleasing to God. Now here's what you need to know about Jesus' suffering. He suffered on the cross the greatest pain of all so that our suffering would be swallowed up in his. He was forsaken so that we never would be. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross as he was dying? Remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you, do you hear the echo of that in Moses this morning? It's just all throughout the Bible. On the cross, Jesus entered into the agony of every doubter struggling to believe, struggling to remember God's promises in the midst of great and terrible suffering. If you think doubt is not a sin that Christ has died for, you don't understand the gospel. Of course he died for that sin. He paid the price for all of our sins, including the sin of our doubt. Now listen, I understand that what I'm doing right now is very theoretical. I'm talking to you in theory about what God has promised us, right? Glory coming through suffering. And like a lot of other things, all of it sounds good on paper, right? You sit down, you write out the budget, you're like, that should work. You sit down, you work out a new eating plan, you're like, this is totally doable. You start thinking through what your workout regimen's gonna be, you're like, yeah, I can totally knock this out. On paper, in theory, all of these things sound totally reasonable, but then you go to try to apply them, you actually try to live them out and you find yourself really struggling. Conceptually, I'm sure that we can all wrap our minds around the concept that we find in this story, yet, when we actually find ourselves in Moses' shoes, when we're actually struggling, we so easily forget what God has promised us and what he has not promised us. Which is why I think, brothers and sisters, it's very important for us to remember that God is very patient with us in our doubts. He is so patient with us. Consider one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story that all kids learn in Sunday school growing up. It's great for storybook Bible uh, devotionals. It's the story of Peter walking on the water. In Matthew 14, the story goes like this. Peter calls out to Jesus. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus is like, okay, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. Wow, right? Really powerful. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. What you see in the story is that Peter started off so confident, right? It, it was very, his faith in that moment, not entirely theoretical, but very theoretical. He saw Jesus walk on water. That built him up in his faith. He said, just tell me to do it and I'll do it, right? Three, two, one, go. Jesus was like, okay, three, two, one, go. And he said, okay, and he, he stepped out of the boat. He was walking on the water. But when did he go under? He went under when his circumstances began to shift. He went under when the wind began to pick up. Now, I know we are all a seafaring people here, so we, we know what that means, but in case there's someone here who doesn't know the significance of the wind picking up, if you're on the ocean and the wind begins to pick up, that means a storm is coming. It's terrifying. You do not want to be caught out on the sea without it. You don't want to be caught out in a dinghy, much less by yourself on the water with no boat. So his circumstances began to shift and that's when his faith began to fail. What you have to understand here is that it is easy in some sense to walk on the water when the sea is calm. But when the storm begins to rage, your faith can falter. You can begin to doubt. I love, I've told the story before, I'll, I'll tell it again. Uh, when I got to 6th Avenue, I was really excited to get to work. We're going to do a church revitalization, X, Y, Z. And for a while, I was like really confident, even when things were like really hard. But there was a day where I pulled Grant aside into my office when the winds were really blowing all around me. And I said to Grant, I said, I think I made a mistake. I, I just, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I should be here. Nothing at all had really changed in the, in the promises of God in that moment. The gospel had not changed. God's character hadn't changed. Things were just getting harder. The circumstances were getting scarier. And so my faith in what God had called us to in this church was beginning to falter. I love that in this story, Jesus asks Peter a question. He says, uh, he says why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? It's like Jesus is trying to get Peter to analyze his own heart, to get him to think about what went wrong. Jesus wants Peter to see you went under because of you, not because of me. I haven't changed, right? I'm the one with the power. You didn't walk on water because of you. You walked on water because of me. You only went under when you began to place your faith more in yourself and in your circumstances than in me. Your circumstances changed, I didn't. Now what you have to see that's really amazing about this story is that the Lord did not give up on Peter when he went beneath the waters. He was patient with Peter. He had mercy on Peter. The same thing is true with John the Baptist. When John the Baptist faltered, when his faith wavered in prison, the Lord did not utterly resign him. Uh, to the realm of, you know, the, well, he doubted me. I guess we're done with him. No, he bore with him in patience. The Lord does not give up on Moses in our story this morning. In his lowest moment of doubt and fear, the Lord does not abandon him. Which means, brothers and sisters, that I think we should be very confident that when suffering causes our faith to falter, that the Lord Jesus is not going to abandon us. He's not going to give up on us. He's not exasperated by us. He's not going to just dress us down. Well, what are you even doing here? I mean, come on, I'm God. Have I ever failed you before? I think that's how I would respond, just to be completely honest with you. Sometimes I respond that way to people in my life. Have I ever done that before? Well, why do you think I would do it now? Come on, use your head. That's the way I would respond, but that's not the way the Lord responds. He is patient and gracious and merciful even when doubts creep in, even when we take our eyes off of Jesus, even when we focus too much on ourselves and on our own circumstances, even when suffering blinds us, the Lord knows the weakness of our frame. 
and he bears with us in love. One of the scriptures we read in our scripture reading earlier in our service this morning was after Jesus rose from the dead and then he appeared to his disciples. Listen to the way Jesus talks to them at his first appearance. Because remember, they're, they're doubting. They're not, they're not believing that he really got out of the grave. He says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What's really incredible about this is that Jesus told the disciples over and over and over again in his earthly ministry that he was going to die and rise again. And yet, after he died and when he finally rose again, the disciples somehow still doubted. You would expect Jesus to just say, guys, listen, I gave you the playbook in advance. I told you this was going to happen. You saw me do a bunch of miracles. You saw me raise Lazarus from the dead. You saw me turn water into wine. You saw me heal heal the paralytic. You saw me calm the wind and the waves. I told you I was going to do this. I'm doing it. How could you possibly, even still now, as you see me, doubt me? But he doesn't say that. He says, why are you doubting? Why are you so troubled? Come, look at me, touch me. He implores them to see for themselves. He reasons with them. He gives their faith time to catch up with their fears. One of the disciples in the room that day was Jude, who would later go on and write an epistle, the shortest epistle, I think the shortest epistle, if not one of, yeah, in the New Testament. Jude was among the doubters, And it's no surprise then that when he writes his epistle, he says this, have mercy on those who doubt. Yeah, Jude remembered his own experience. He remembered his doubt. He remembered the way that Jesus responded to him with mercy in that moment. And Jude, being a good Jew, I'm certain that he remembers this story from Exodus 5, right? He probably remembers the story of Abraham and Sarah, the you know, the the progenitors of the covenant clan of Israel and how they doubted God. He almost certainly remembers Gideon and Elijah and the way that they doubted God. Of course, Jude remembers John the Baptist and Peter, the apostle, as they doubted God. But more than all of that, he has to remember the mercy that his master showed him. And so you should remember that too. In the same way that God has been merciful and gracious towards you in your lowest, weakest moments, you should be merciful towards those who struggle with doubt. You should be patient. You should be forgiving. You should walk with them as they struggle. You should also invite them in. Have conversations with them. There's, there's, a, there's a wrong way that you can respond to what I'm saying here, and I want to make sure that I get out ahead of it. I want to make sure that uh, this morning or any other morning that you don't misapply this principle of showing mercy to doubters. So listen carefully. Doubt is never a virtue. Doubt is ne- We live in an age somehow where Christians go online and they love to like tout their doubt. They love to brag about their doubt. They love to show off their doubt. It is a kind of exhibition for them. They love to talk about their doubt as if it's a virtue. Friends, doubt is never a virtue. Disbelieving the promises of God is never a good thing. You will never glorify God in your doubt. When my children come to me and say, Dad, I just don't believe you're going to give me what I need today, I am never glorified by that. God is never glorified by our disbelief. Listen to me. If you're a note taker, write this down and underline it. Doubt is always a sin. Always. Without exception. Suffering, yes, there are tons of reasons why we may more easily fall into that sin, but it's always a sin. Which is why God is merciful towards us in our doubt. He shows mercy towards us in our sin. 
When John the Baptist doubted Jesus, Jesus did not merely respond like this. He didn't say, you know, John, (laughs) I get it. Times are hard. You know, you're confused. You're in jail. Suffering can do this to us. Don't worry about it. Sometimes we just have to live with our doubts. Now, what did he do? He told John's disciples to go back to him and share evidence with him to strengthen his faith. He says this, tell John all that you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have heard the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus gives John a reason to doubt his doubts. He calls him to examine his doubts in light of greater evidence that Jesus is presenting in his life and ministry. When Peter doubted Jesus on the sea, Jesus did not just say, ah, you know, buddy, I get it. (laughs) Wind and waves, it's all scary. No, he did, in fact, rebuke Peter. He said, oh, you of little faith. Now, to be fair, that is a, a fairly mild gentle rebuke but it is a rebuke nonetheless in exodus 6 right after so we're in exodus 5 this morning in exodus 6 the next chapter uh, god responds to moses's doubts like this now moses you shall see what i will do to pharaoh you see that I'm going to give you evidence, counter evidence to your doubts. You're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So this is the last thing I want us to consider together this morning. I think that one of the main reasons why God allows us to wander into the darkness of doubt is so that he can show off the radiance of his glory against the backdrop of our weakness. God is always going to be glorified when he does his works. But there's something about a black backdrop that makes his light shine even brighter. You can think about that in other ways too theologically. So for example, in Romans chapter 9, one of the reasons why Paul says that God allows the reprobate to suffer his wrath in hell is so that when we come into his grace in heaven, it is against the backdrop of that wrath that his grace will shine all the brighter. In the same way, God allows us, even as believers sometimes, to wander into weakness, to wander into doubt, so that we will really, truly see, behold the significance of his powerful hand at work in our lives. You can even do a little thought experiment to help you understand this a little bit better. If I gave you $100, you would probably appreciate it. Maybe you'd appreciate it less than you appreciated it a year ago. Inflation is a beast. But you would appreciate it. But if you weren't really in need, like... it. If, if like your bills are getting paid, you got a little disposable income every month, it's just, it, $100 would probably not blow you away. But if you were down to your last penny and I gave you the same amount of money, the glory of the gift would be magnified to a significantly greater degree. That's kind of what we see here in Exodus 5. The signs and wonders of God in Exodus 6 are going to shine all the more brightly in light of the doubt that we see in Moses here in chapter five. Sometimes in our lives of comfort and relative ease, God allows us to endure suffering and confusion and doubt so that at just the right time, he can step in and get the maximum amount of glory. Think about that in the story of Lazarus. Do you remember the, the messenger comes to Jesus and says, you know, your friend whom you love, Lazarus, is dying. And Jesus says, great, I'll be there in a few days. He could have left. He could have gotten there. He could have saved Lazarus' life. But he planned things out in such a way that he did not show up until Lazarus was in the grave for three days. Why did he do it that way? Because he wanted the power of his resurrection glory to shine all the more brightly against the backdrop of him being in the grave for three whole 
days. This is what God does. He always orchestrates events. He always predestines history. He always sets up our lives in such a way so that when he shows up on the scene and exerts his power as God, he receives the maximum amount of glory. So as we close our time together, I want us to quickly revisit the story of Peter. When Peter's faith failed, he sank down into the waters of death. But then he did something incredible. Do you remember what he did? He cried out to Jesus for salvation. He didn't think about it. He didn't pontificate. He didn't come up with a plan. There was no time to think. Whatever was in him had to instinctively come up out of him. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And then Matthew tells us that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him. Listen, some of you are in, are in a fight for your life with doubt and you are handling it the exact wrong way. You are, you are just, you're doing everything in your own power. You're trusting in your own reason. You're trying to come up with your own plan. You're trying to move by your own strength. You're trying to get your heart to do all the work on its own, but your heart isn't built for that kind of stress, for that kind of workload. What you should be doing if you're struggling with doubt because of suffering is just crying out desperately, immediately, reflexively, Lord Jesus, save me. I can't do this. I'm going down under the waters of death. I'm going to die. Please come take me by your powerful hand. Nobody has ever sincerely prayed that prayer and not been rescued by Jesus. Nobody. So have you taken your doubts to God? Sometimes we just feel like we're not going to make it. We try to swim our own way out of the waters. But our hope, it has to be, brothers and sisters, it has to be not in our ability to hold on to him, but his ability to hold on to us. As Peter was coming up out of the water, as Jesus took a hold of him, Peter was not thinking, man, my ability to survive right now is dependent on my ability to hang on to Jesus. Peter knew the only reason I'm going to live through this is because he will hold me fast. That is our only hope and what a great hope and confidence it is. As Luke comes up to lead us in our next song, let's close with prayer. Lord, help us to believe that we have no hope in our own strength and our own power according to our own reason all of those things can be so easily shaken, but you are a God who is never shaken. Your strength, your glory, your love, they're all on our side because we are in your son Christ Jesus. And if we are not, we pray anyone here, anyone here who needs to, that they will call out to you and that you will save them. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.